This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back for part two of the discussion with Jason Calacanis. The response to part one has been overwhelmingly positive. I can't remember the last time I received so many emails about an episode. Clearly, it struck a nerve with many of you, so I'm happy to release part two today. For this installment, I did not have time to include the usual tip of the week. However, I did include five takeaways instead of the usual three. There were numerous valuable insights from Jason, hence the additional takeaways that we'll recap at the end of the episode. Quickly, I wanted to congratulate David Rabby and the team at Tovala for officially launching their product. It's a smart oven and companion meal service. As one of our investments, we've featured Tavala on the program here before, and David actually made an appearance very recently on Jason's This Week in Startups podcast. It was a fantastic episode, and I'd encourage everyone to check it out. Tavala has a limited release of 2,000 ovens available right now, and I hear they're going fast. My wife and I have been using the service for months now, and we've been blown away by the food quality. The meals are far better than anything we've had from Blue Apron, and they're certainly better than the unhealthy takeout options nearby. With the new addition to our family and my wife's three-month maternity leave, uh, we've even increased our meal plan from six meals per week to nine. I never imagined my super picky wife would be loving the food so much. Um, she now wants to even have it as an option for lunch as she's been busy with the baby. Amazing. Um, so once again, congrats to the team. Uh, you've created a better lifestyle for my family. Uh, we're spending more quality time together and eating much more healthy, delicious food. I look forward to thanking you guys in person soon. Okay, as for the interview with Jason, in part two, we cover his thoughts on the original Sequoia Scout program and the many similar programs today, how he does such high volume of investments when he insists on spending hours with every startup founder that pitches, if he's really investing in the angel round when it seems that he's been targeting post-seed, his response to those who claim that VCs get access to all the best deals. And finally, his strategy with the syndicate and the types of deals he's looking for. Here's part two of the interview with Jason Calacanis. So you did mention Sequoia, uh, yep. and I believe you were the first scout uh, yep. for Sequoia years ago. Yep. Um, and now it seems like all the big firms have their own sort of scout or investment programs and some of the earlier stage funds or investors... Um, you know, what are your thoughts on this? It's obviously a program that works. Um, you know, when <laughs> Rolof Botha came up with it, he asked me for my opinion on it. And uh, he's like, we give you the money. We split the returns 50-50. I said, what's the catch? He's like, oh, you have to fill out a deal memo. I was like, F that. I don't want to fill out any paperwork. I'll just make this <laughs> one page. 
and it just says what you think, why you think this will work. And I was like, I don't know if I want to fill out one page. And I was like, pretty <laughs> stupid on <laughs> my part. And in the book, actually, I talk about the value of writing deal memos That's and right. writing thesis, right? So you do it for the syndicate I, investments, too. I do it for the syndicate investments. I write public blog posts, why we invested $378,000 in com.com when everybody told me that was going to be a failed investment. And I'll, I'll be putting that back in people's faces <laughs> shortly. Um, I cannot wait for that day. But it's, uh, yeah, you... I learned a lot from that program uh, and the association, and I think it's wise that other venture firms uh, have scouts out there because a venture firm putting $500 million to work does not have the ability to write $50,000 checks. I mean, just think about the number of $50,000 checks they'd have to write to deploy $500 million or even $100 million. It's impossible. Um, you know, I'm writing $100,000 checks right now, and I'm going to try to deploy 200 of them in the in the next three or four years. That's a lot of check writing. That's a lot of babies to have it's high volume. It's a lot of volume. It's going to be 70 investments a year. It's going to be one point X investments per week. And so I have to have a team of nine people sorting through all these deals, managing the incubator, managing the syndicate. I mean, it's becoming quite an operation. It's very hard to scale early deal flow, and it's not for the faint of heart. You have to be passionate about investing in this segment of companies. And I think I figured out a way to scale it the same way Y Combinator has, but very few, or Ron Conway did. Uh, very few people have figured out uh, and have the energy level to do this category at scale. It's, it's one thing to do 10 investments a year. It's another thing to do, you know, I've been doing 40 a year, 30 or 40 a year for four or five years. It's like, it's not easy. Um, and I'll, I'm going to be doubling that pace soon. So you need to have infrastructure. You need to have a process. We have that after four or five years of doing this, but most people do not. And so I don't suggest people try to scale it unless they have already done 50 or 100 investments and you have enough infrastructure and lessons and legal and accounting and auditing in place. It's it's hard to scale. Um, and it's for these big firms, they're just not equipped to do you know, 200 $100,000 investments, and then also do a dozen $20 million investments. Uh, you know, it's just too hard. So while we're talking volume, you just mentioned 70 per year. It's more than one a week. That's un unbelievable. Um, but yeah. clearly, you know, you're doing it. I think you're already doing 30 per year per the book. 30 but, to 40 right now. Yeah. Okay, 30 per, yeah, 30 to 40. So you also emphasize the importance of carving out about three hours for every founder that you meet with. So you talk yep. about an hour of prep, an hour for the meeting, and then an hour of post-work. Yep. Um, how can you possibly keep up the pace, Jason, when you're insisting on this significant time commitment? Yeah, you have to have a team. Um, and I have a great team that scales this. So I'm, I've defined what we're looking for very clearly with a team of nine full-time people. Those nine full-time people uh, help produce This Week in Startups, our events, social media, email newsletters, launch ticker, et cetera. All of those things are a massive draw for people to come into our circle. And we also do some new products. We just started something called Founder University, and we have something called Angel University, and we do something called Angel Summit. These are hacks that we've come up with. 35 women will be coming to the Female Founder University um, in July for two days. My team puts out a call. They write the agenda based on some topics. They get the speakers. It's two days. 
it's 12 hours of content, they bring the top 35 people based upon how they correlate with my specific Goldilocks zone. My Goldilocks zone, not too hot, not too cold, not not pre-product market fit, not Series A ready, but right before a Series A and right after getting the product into market. I tell them, bring me 35 companies like that. Then I go for two days. I meet 35 companies in two days. I do interactive training with them, and then I get to know them. Now I've met 35 pre-selected companies based on a pool of 500 applicants. So it's you know the top X percentage, uh, whatever it is, 7%. And that winds up giving me a massive advantage over my contemporaries who don't have a team doing that, right? So it's it's all about coming up with these kind of hacks. So in this case, I don't have to do an hour of prep, an hour of post, and an hour of meeting. I can have my team do all the prep, bring me the companies, give me the dossiers on 35 of them. I scan the dossiers uh, while I'm there. I meet them. I have each one pitch me. I give feedback to each one. And then post, I say, hey, these 10 are the ones I think have the greatest chance invite them to my incubator. Then we spend 12 weeks together with those seven or eight companies if they say yes to the incubator. And so that's the efficiency that I'm creating inside of our organization, which it might be the follow-up book, Super Angel or something like that, <laughs> uh, or, or incubate, uh, you know, something about incubators or accelerators because there is a whole other way to scale this. So if, and you read the book. Yeah. Did you like the book? Jason, it's a page turner, <laughs> which is very rare in the industry. I mean, I'm sure you've read some of the other books. I'm not going to name them all. And they're they're awesome. They're informative. They can really get you a head start on getting up to speed in, in VC and angel investing. But but yours was actually a page turner. I got through it in three nights. It was enjoyable to read. Uh, that's what I was going for. I wanted it to be entertaining. I wanted it to be fun, to read, funny at times, uh, and insightful and candid. So I, I kind of went full full candidness. <laughs> we did have to change the names of uh, some of the investors and companies mentioned in the book. So we would protect the innocent or the guilty as the case may be. Yeah. There was one from Chicago. I remember in particular. <laughs> yeah. You don't mention the name. You don't mention I the won't. Family. I won't. I won't. But yeah, Just, I'm not blowing smoke here. I mean, it, it really reads like your voice. So well done. Well, that was a um, big debate with HarperCollins. They paid a lot of money for the book. Um, I got like... And talking to a couple of my friends, I got 10, 20 times what some of the top authors got on their first book because I think HarperCollins realized this is a potential bestseller. It's like a very unique piece of work. But they said to me, so are you gonna, do you want to write it yourself or would you like us to put you in touch with a ghostwriter or a collaborator who can do it for you and we'll pay for it or you'll pay for whatever? Ugh. And I was like – um, no, I want to write it myself. And they're like, okay. And I could tell they were like, not exactly. Okay. <laughs> I said, uh, they said, well, will you send us the first five chapters? I didn't write the book in advance, which is also kind of miraculous. So I sent them the first five chapters and my editor Hollis just said, this is amazing. Do not change anything. I am intrigued. I am scared. I am in enthralled. Get me the rest of the book. You do not need a ghostwriter. You have a very unique voice and it's coming through and this is a bestseller. And I was like, oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> well, and, uh, you know, for someone as public as you, I think people would see right through it if if you had a ghostwriter. Yeah, I agree. And then even reading the book, they were like, oh, my God, we got the greatest reader. They, This person read this person's book, that person's book. And I was like, I want to read the book. And they're like, ah, uh, you know, like – 
because I got a lot riding on it. I said, I tell you what, I'll, I'll do the first day of reading. You tell me if it sucks or not. If you think it sucks, forget it. If you think it's great, I'll read the rest of the book. And we, they had five days booked to read the book. I did it in three. And they were like, this is incredible. So I was like, great. You know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm proud that, we, that I actually did the work. I did have one person help me, my former partner, Brian Alvey from Weblogs Inc., who's been my friend since high school when we played Dungeons and Dragons together. <laughs> and we would, we'd, we'd play computer together and computer games and everything. I said, hey, would you come over to my house and just I'll write a chapter. You read it. We'll go for a walk. We'll get some lunch. We'll write some notes. We'll walk back. We'll do a little more writing. We'll just do that for as many days as it takes. And so we would average two, 3,000 good words a day. We did it for 19 days and we hit, you know, whatever, 50,000 words. We had like 20,000 left. And I said, okay, or 15,000 left. And I was like, all right, let's go to Los, let's go to Los Angeles. I had speaking at a Mark Sister's conference. I said, I'll get a suite at the Standard Hotel and we'll stay there until it's done. And so we got to day three and we finished the book in three or four days. And we did a writing session in the morning, we went for breakfast, we wrote lunch. We wrote, we went to the gym, we wrote, we went to dinner. Then we came back and wrote a little bit more. We did that for three days and we started doing 5,000 words a day. And let me tell you something, you start writing 5,000 words a day, your brain fucking <laughs> melts. My brain was melting. Like literally my brain was coming out of my ears and nose and eyes. Like I was just, but we got there and uh, we could have written a lot more too. We had to just stop at a certain point because I said, I want it to be you know, something people can read, like you said, in three or four days, get a, get their bearing and get to work uh, on the strategy. But I'm really hoping that some people become billionaires or millionaires based on reading the book and investing. And my secret hope is that they share their deal flow with me. So the whole thing is a front for me to create the largest angel syndicate and network in the world. Well, uh, don't steal all know. my deal flow. Everybody out there listening, remember Newstack, Newstack Ventures and our syndicate yeah. as well. But Jason it's certainly has a, a much larger one and uh, does a, well, a the, lot more deals. Here's the good news. Have you met a startup yet that only did one round of funding? No. Have you met a startup that only had one investor in their early rounds of funding? Not a successful one. I don't Exactly. Think. So there's, it just doesn't happen. What we do is a collaborative sport. So I even tell people now with my syndicate, I tell my entrepreneurs, Go find another syndicate. I, listen, I already own three, four, five, six, seven percent of the company. Go find another syndicate. You, you could use Nick's. You could use Gills. You can use anybody's. I don't care. The more people involved in a startup who are good investors and who do heavy lifting, the better it is for the company. So I'm always looking for collaborators um, to help with my companies. Well, very impressed that you're able to find time to write this book amidst everything else. But speaking of which, the book is angelthebook.com. It comes out July 18th. Uh, if you go to the site there, Jess tells me you can pre-order. Is that correct? Yeah, you can pre-order on Barnes & Noble's, Amazon, iBooks, if you're into reading on your iPad, um, Audible, all the different bookstores out there. And if you go to Angel the Book, you can sign up with your email, and you'll get invited to some um, parties I'm going to do where if people show up with the part with the book, I'll autograph it and buy you a hamburger. So I'm going to do these special <laughs> hamburger meetups because everybody likes a good burger. So I'm just going to take over some, you know, five guys or whatever and just say, if you show up at this five guys with your copy, I'll buy you a burger and I'll autograph it. Um, I'll take you up on that. I got the autograph, yeah. but I want the burger. <laughs> good burgers out there. So I'm going to do it in different cities. So I'm really excited about it. Awesome. I'm just really uh, excited that you read it. I appreciate you reading it. I it's mean, good. It's, uh, Jason, it was a good book. I mean, I learned quite a bit, and I've been doing this for 
almost four years. So that's, you know, that's what I was telling somebody. They're like, is this for new angels, for existing angels? Like, you know, if you're an existing angel, I'm guessing you'll get more out of it because it will confirm things you're doing. And then there'll be things you disagree with me on, but there'll be other things that you go, oh, I never thought of doing that. That's a great secret. And I just put it all out there. I didn't hold back any of my secrets because it, although many aspects of the world are a zero sum game, angel investing is a collaborative game. And so the more I can empower other people and the more goodwill I put out there and sharing my secrets, my belief is that you'll come to me and say, hey, I got the next Uber. I got the next Cafe X. Do you want to put 25 or 50K? And if you put 25, 50K in the right company, you could turn into 10 million or $100 million. And that's what I'm going for. So yep. uh, I put all the secrets out there. So speaking of points of disagreement, there was uh, one of your filters that you suggested is to look for startups that have six months of continuous user growth or six months of revenue. Um, yeah. Are, are you really investing in the angel round or the pre-seed round if you're requiring sort of six months of traction prior to investment? So one of the things I'm noticing in the market is that it used to be companies with that much traction would automatically get a Series A. Something has happened in the last three or four years where there's too many companies who have hit that benchmark and the Series A people are saying, I'm happy to meet with you with six months of continuous traction, but I'll probably wait another six or 12 months till you hit $150,000 or $250,000 a month in revenue to do the Series A. So there is a new sweet spot where you can find companies that raised – a million dollars at $4 million valuation. They raised $2 million at a $8 million valuation. And now they need another million dollars because they can't get the Series A. And you have to search for them, but they're out there and they want to put a million dollars and they'll do it at the $8 million valuation from a year ago or 18 months ago. There are so many people doing flat rounds with triple the performance. And this, this is, like is the ultimate hack. Bullpen sweet spot, the C plus or – I think seed plus there's if you if you're willing to do the work and understand the revenue and understand the traction and make sure you're not catching a knife but that you're getting on uh, you know a roller coaster as you're getting up going up the hill that's what you're looking for like they're firing the rockets they're still on the launch pad but the rockets are now like almost ready to lift off that's what you're looking for is that sweet spot and man it's everywhere I have so many companies in my own portfolio that have hit 25 or 50 or 75 or $100,000 in revenue in a month and they have 300,000 in revenue for the quarter and they can't trigger a series A wow. because there's too many companies who have hit this benchmark and there's not enough VCs. So the VCs are going, listen, I got five companies here and two of them have 150,000 a month in revenue. One of them has a hundred and then two of them have 75. I'm going to go with these two or I'm going to just take this one. They don't have the ability to do more than one deal every couple of months. So with their due diligence process, joining the board and doing all the work, they're making a $5 million bet. They don't want, they can't make five $5 million bets simultaneously. So there's a lot of waiting going on right now. What happens when these companies are waiting? They either have to cut their staff in half to become break even, or they have to cut a third of their staff to lower their burn and increase their performance while lowering their burn. So they need to top off they raise three million. They need another million. They raise four million. They need another one point five. It's happening all over the place. Uh, I see it constantly. So, what I would do if I was, you know, if you if you want to find these kind of investments, just look for a company that's hiring people, uh, or that has, you know, raised three or four million dollars, and just ask them to lunch. 
you if you go through Crunchbase, Mattermark, DealBook, uh, any of these places and look for companies that have that are three or four years old, have raised three or four million dollars, but don't have a Series A. You find that it's worth taking the meeting because you might just find somebody who's a you know six twelve months away from a Series A, uh, but they're in that Goldilocks zone where they you know they've just eliminated so much risk. Yep. Yeah, we're launching a deal that that fits squarely into that category this week on Angelus. Yeah. So right. email maybe, me, email me, get me in on it. <laughs> <laughs> let me lob, let me lob a quick ten dime. <laughs> yep, yep. So I think you've already answered this, but you know, what do you say to those that claim that the best deals are are funded by VCs and that the angels will only have access to the ones that the top investors pass on? I say Uber, Thumbtack, <laughs> Wealthfront, uh, Robinhood, Data Stacks, and Desktop Metal. <laughs> And Trello. So there's seven companies that are all worth over $500 million I invested in in the early rounds where VCs were just either not at the table yet or didn't have the wherewithal and the gumption to take the whole round. So that is complete and utter nonsense. There there might be some anecdotal stories that, you know, Twitter or WhatsApp or Zynga might have, you know, had very little – room left in their round or medium or something. But those things are, they still have some angels in it because the founders want to have their friends involved. And uh, yeah, you're not going to get into every deal, but right now there are many, many, many more opportunities than there are investors. We are at a shortage of investors. That's why there's this opportunity for you and I to do syndicates, right? Why aren't the VCs coming down here and doing these 250K, 500K checks? They have two, their funds are too big. Yeah, so that's the big. opportunity for us. They can't put and the money you know to work. Those VCs are panicking about it right now. They realize that they created a monster because they stopped funding in that 250 to $1 million check range. They now have to deal with you and Gil Pacina and me and Funders Club. They're getting boxed out and the entrepreneurs are not scared of taking syndicate money. The VCs tried to scare – some VCs tried to scare oh, entrepreneurs yeah. from taking syndicates. They were like, oh, my God, the syndicates are going to leak information. Oh, my God, the syndicates don't have the ability to follow <laughs> yeah. on. Oh, my God, these are these are unknowns. You need professional investors. Fuck you, man. It's like these syndicates <laughs> are willing to take the bet when the entrepreneurs need them. These VCs pur- purposely tried to stop Naval and Ryan at Seed Invest. They tried to stop Funders Club. They tried to deride these company, these these syndicate marketplaces. And you know what happened? It blew up in their faces because they don't want to do the work to meet with these companies and write these hard checks. It's hard to write the speculative checks. It's easy to write the check in the 200K MRR, 150K MRR companies. It's hard to write the 250 check. It's hard to do what you do, Nick. It's hard to do what I do. It seems like most of the entrepreneurs have figured that out, that they were blowing smoke at this point. But a couple of years ago, a lot of entrepreneurs were a little wary of the syndicates. Now they, they realize that it's no different than anybody else investing. Yeah, the money is green. And when you get a syndicate, you get 50 investors, 25, 75, sometimes 99, who you can email and say, anybody know somebody at LinkedIn? Anybody know somebody at GM? And you know what? Somebody in that group knows somebody at GM or LinkedIn and can get you an introduction. So it actually turns out the syndicates are probably better in aggregate than all but the top 20 VC firms because the, you know, the Sequoias, the Benchmarks, the Social Capitals, the Kleiner Perkins, you know, those top tier VC firms, they do a great job. DFJ, 
um, those company, those VCs go to work for you. But the other ones down from there, a lot of them are calling in rich. A lot of them are not putting a lot of effort into their portfolios. Jason, who amongst the angel community do you admire most? Uh, Cyan Bannister, Chris Saka, Kevin Rose, Tim Ferriss, uh, Ed Roman doing a great job. Gil Pinchina doing a great job. Uh, Ryan at uh, Seed Invest, Naval at uh, AngelList. Uh, these people, just Esther Dyson, the original, Ron Conway, one of the originals, uh, Steve Case, one of the originals, Ted Leonsis. I mean, there's people who you know are part of the OG group. The original gangsters who just did a great job laying the groundwork. And then you have this new cohort, you know, who are just doing the work. You know, you look at some of these folks, they just come to work every day and they they do what, um, you know, O'Reilly said, which is just, you know, extract less than you put into the ecosystem, right? Provide more value than you extract. And that's the way to win. You know, Tim O'Reilly really nailed it. Uh, and I think a lot of people, and Naval said it to me at 1.2 from AngelList, it's like, it's a competition to see who can provide the most value. And one of <laughs> the financial I, services, right? Listen, I, there's nobody who provides more value than me. I mean, I know that. I put much more, I have a platform, I have the podcast, I have the events, I have the newsletters, I, I have whatever my raw intelligence is. And uh, which may not be my biggest, but you know, there's probably other people speaking on that one. But that's why we work hard, Jason. I put so much hustle into building this platform with my team to really, really provide more value than anybody else. And now, there, I'm sure there are some people who provide more value than me. Gary Vee does a great job too. But I know I'm in the top ten, and I'm just trying to be number one. And and that's really, you know, the motivation behind putting the book out is. I'm I'm definitely in the top five to ten best angel investors of all time. I just want to be number one. So I got to catch up to Ron Conway. I got to catch up to Chris Saka and maybe Esther Dyson and a couple of other people in front of me. But I got you know five, ten more years to do this and then I'm going to retire. And uh, I got a shot at being number one, right? It's, hopefully I have a better shot at being number one than LeBron does. I don't think he's going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's done. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex Corporate Card for Startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend, and all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee, and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group, or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. 
Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. Uh, the book is Angel. Please buy it. <laughs> the website is angelthebook.com. You can pre-order it. Comes out July 18th. Jason, it's a huge pleasure uh, finally getting a chance to chat on the podcast. Yeah. Love the book. Come to the Angel and- Summit. You coming to the Angel Summit? I will. Send me a July link. 13th, 14th, 15th. Oh, gosh. It comes up that soon. Okay. Yeah. Got to come. It's going to be amazing. All, All right, right, Jason. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much. All right. Great talking to you. Thanks for having me. All right. Amazing interview there with Jason. Let's wrap up with the key takeaways. Again, we have five takeaways today. And key takeaway number one is called wealth creation in the 21st century. Conventional wisdom in the 20th century, for those that grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, was that the best way to create wealth was to get a white-collar job, become an attorney, a doctor, an accountant, or an IT specialist, and make a salary of $100,000 plus. Then one should buy a house and save their money. Don't go out to eat, pack your lunch, don't buy your coffee, and retire with a few million dollars. But in Jason's estimation, this formula no longer works. He cited the changes in real estate value. In the 20th century, homes were 1 to 2x your household income. Now, if you live in a nice area, the home prices are often 5 to 10x household income. Using one's personal real estate to create wealth is no longer viable. And Jason mentioned that the conventional wisdom from books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad and Secret Millionaire on the Block just don't apply anymore. According to Jason, the method for creating real wealth in the 21st century will look much different. He believes that wealth creation will come from investing in early-stage tech. And Jason himself came from a lower-middle-class upbringing in Brooklyn. He hopes that others can get smart on angel investing, like him, and can move from poor to rich, or from middle-class to rich, or from rich to the ultra-wealthy. Okay, key takeaway number two is called No Gamble, No Future. It's important to mention that angel investing is not for everyone. Most people's brains are not wired to take this type of risk. This is not a normal pursuit. The majority of investments often fail. However, if you're wired for this and you want to learn, Jason recommended to make small investments in 10 to 20 startups. What was not previously possible is now possible via syndicates. Angels can find these syndicates on AngelList, Funders Club, or Seed Invest. He suggests that new angels only invest via syndicates. And to start out with four-figure investments but act as though they're five-figure. Amass a diversified portfolio and get involved. The most successful angel investors figure out a way to drive value for the startups they invest in. And he reminded investors not to sweat the small stuff. If you're angel investing, you understand that a high percentage are going to fail. So you need to let some investments fail and then move on. Finally, Jason called attention to access. We've discussed this on the podcast before in the tip of the week, access is everything. Jason said that getting access to the best deals is one of the major challenges. How can an independent angel get into Robin Hood's seed stage round? From his standpoint, they can either build their brand and earn access to the best deals, or they can invest via syndicates where the lead performs that function and provides access to their members. Okay, key takeaway number three is called the Colombo Approach. 
When evaluating startups for investment, Jason likes to ask very basic questions and listen intently to the answers. He prefers short, open-ended questions and looks for incredibly considered, intelligent, passionate, and thoughtful responses. In Jason's experience, founders must be super thoughtful and tactical these days to be successful. So pre-investment, Jason has a small mouth and big ears. Example questions include, what are you working on? Why now? Every founder should be able to answer the why now question. What technology and market factors currently exist that are creating this opportunity? Leo Polovitz wrote a fantastic article on simple, open-ended questions called, why you, why this, why now? And some red flags that he looks for include, if a founder cannot tell you about their customers. If that's the case, there's something seriously wrong. Also, if a founder lists eight different ways that they're going to make money. Jason thinks it's unlikely that they'll make any money if they're trying this many different business models. Now, after Jason's maiden investment, his interaction does change. He now insists that founders send a monthly update, and he asks one or two questions per update. Jason is careful not to tell founders what to do, rather ask them how they're approaching a problem. It's really a matter of asking the right thoughtful questions. If Jason is confused or curious about their location strategy, he will ask the founder how they decided to launch in certain locations. Other question frameworks include, have we thought about blank? How are we approaching blank? Have you considered blank? There's a smart way to call attention to a focus area, and giving directives is the worst approach. There are many ways to run a business, and he doesn't want entrepreneurs appeasing investors instead of focusing on customers. Okay, key takeaway number four is called the Goldilocks Zone. Jason has witnessed a growing opportunity at the seed plus or post-seed stage. Startups that have raised a pre-seed or angel round and a seed round, but are not yet ready for A. They've eliminated a ton of risk. In many cases, these companies have hit 50 to 100K in MRR, an amount that's no longer high enough to trigger a Series A. In Jason's estimation, there are not enough Series A firms out there to serve the number of strong companies. So the bar has been raised for an A, and the gap between seed and A has widened. This is the definition of the Series A crunch, and it's created a major gap in the market. It's allowed firms like Bullpen Capital to carve out an interesting niche, specializing in the post-seed round. Because there's so much opportunity here for de-risk companies at favorable prices, Jason is now seeking out investments in the Goldilocks zone, as he calls it. Okay, and finally, key takeaway number five is called Expanding Scout Programs. For those that aren't familiar, Sequoia launched their scout program in 2009. In this program, they provided capital to angels and encouraged them to make investments. These angels would find the early stage startups to invest in and then split the economics with Sequoia. This provided Sequoia an inside look into many hot emerging startups, and they'd be positioned to lead the A or B round in those that showed the most promise. Jason was the first scout for Sequoia when they launched the program and it was a program that worked well. Their only requirement was that Jason write deal memos for each investment, a practice that became a very valuable exercise. Today, a large number of firms are launching their own scout programs. 
some via lead angel investors, and many by taking LP positions in early-stage venture funds. Jason said he learned a lot from the program and thinks it's not only wise, but maybe their only strategy for getting access early. When a firm has $500 million under management, how can they deploy $50,000 checks? Large firms are not equipped to do high-volume, small investments. It's far too much work, and it won't move the needle. But they can get involved in early opportunities by investing in the funds that specialize in early rounds. There is even a parallel here with the LPGP market. Many LPs that typically invest large check sizes are beginning to take pilot positions in small funds. Their goal here is not ROI. Even if these funds return 5x, it won't move the needle for a large fund of funds. Rather, they're buying an option. In a way, this is their own scout program. They can monitor emerging fund managers and secure their spot in future larger funds. Okay, that will wrap up the key takeaways in today's episode. If you'd be so kind, please leave a five-star review in iTunes for the show. And if you're actively investing and looking for access to great deal flow, I'd encourage you to check out both Jason's syndicate as well as ours on AngelList. You can find and back our syndicate by going to AngelList and searching for New Stack Ventures. Okay, all the best to you listeners out there. And remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you again soon. Mm-hmm.